Welcome back to the program. When we think and talk about the Middle East today, we look at it in terms of the religious and ethnic strife and extremism that define today's conflicts. We also assume that this conflict has been going on for centuries, that the holy wars and clashes of civilization of today have been the basis for the whole history of the region. My guest, Middle East historian Brian Katlos, has a different view, one that puts those conflicts in a more political and economic perspective. In a world of conflict about money and land and power, wherein interfaith cooperation was possible and where globalization may have really gotten its start. Can understanding this history help us face today's challenges? Certainly the beginning of any such process is understanding that history. And that's what we're going to do today with my guest, Brian Katlos. He's a professor of religious studies at the University of Colorado Boulder and a research associate at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He's the author of the prize-winning book, The Victors and the Vanquished, and it is my pleasure to welcome Brian Katlos here to talk about Infidel Kings and Unholy Warriors, Faith, Power, and Violence in the Age of Crusade and Jihad. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to have the chance to talk with you. Great to have you here. Why are we so quick to assume that the ethnic conflicts, the religious conflicts that we see playing out today are exactly the same ones that that have played out for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Well, I think there's there's a couple of reasons. And one of the reasons is a, a tendency for us to see what may be in fact separate and disjointed and independent events uh as being a continuum. Okay, when we look at uh conflict in the Middle East, ethno-religious violence and conflict, the kind of thing that I'm interested in studying, you know, what we see is in the last, say, 1,500 years or so, or a little bit longer, we see occasional eruptions of violence, and I think we presume that they are connected when, in fact, they may be absolutely independent. And one of the reasons we presume that they're connected is because it's, it's very natural for us and very uh, tempting for us to think of those events or categorize them in terms of these sort of grand civil, civilizational divisions, uh, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and thereby sort of take the next step and, and think, okay, well, if we have these incidents of Muslim-Christian-Jewish violence, it must be because these people are Muslims, Christians, and Jews. And the kind of thing that my work gets at, I think, and I, I hope it, it makes a good case for it, is that even though these people certainly identify with these different religious groups or cultural groups, and even though at times they articulate their agendas and their conflicts on those terms, on those ideological terms, what is actually often or usually driving them, either wholly or in part, are things that have maybe nothing to do with religion, ideology, or religious identity. It's interesting, though, that not only is our perception that, but that either the perception or the persona that those that are fighting the religious battles now put forth is that these are the same battles that have been going on for centuries. Well, sure. I think that you know uh, we're always uh, we always try to to justify our actions, and particularly when our actions are 
not necessarily very savory, or whether uh, or when they involve conflict. Uh, you know, we need in order to be able to 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 justify that, we need to connect them to some sort of higher moral cause, which exempts us from the normal rules of of morality and uh, interpersonal and intercultural and intergroup interaction. And so it becomes very convenient if I want something of yours, and I, what I want to do is I want to take it for whatever reason, or I feel I should be in charge, that if I can rationalize that in terms of, of a higher moral purpose, that's going to be appealing, much more appealing not only to the people who I, who I want to mobilize, who I want to follow me, but also even to myself. I think that you know, it's very easy tempting and natural for people to confuse the good that has a capital G, the greater moral good, mm-hmm. with whatever happens to be good for them. So there's a certain amount of, consciously or not, there's a certain self-serving element uh, to these ideologies. We see that even playing out today when so much of the ideological battle that we see playing out and much of this holy war rhetoric that we hear is in part about geopolitical division and boundaries and states that, that in fact were artificially created and the religious struggles becomes almost an overlay for that. Yeah, I think I think the two things work hand in hand. If we look at the way that that European uh, nationalism developed, and the very, you know, brutal, messy, violent process by which over the last 500 years European nation-states took shape and by which they continue to take shape. And we look at the, at the Middle East, there are some real similarities. I think the difference is, and this is something that occurred to me a few days ago, uh, is that Generally speaking, what we tend to do is we tend to blame, as it were, the colonial interference in the wake of the First World War and the establishment of the, the artificial national boundaries in the Middle East associated with the, the, the Sykes-Picot tre- uh, Treaty that carved up the Middle East, as it were, mm-hmm. with being the root of the problems we're facing today. But I think that, in a way, what those artificial boundaries did was for good or for bad, and I'm, I'm not excusing colonial interference anywhere by a long shot, but what they did, I think, was that they, they put off the process of national, the consolidation of, of national religiously flavored identities in that region. We're seeing that happening now. As those artificial boundaries break down, we're seeing realignments, cultural, political, ethnic realignments in which what we may be witnessing is the birth of new countries. Mm-hmm. And the birth of new countries is always a messy, violent affair involving dislocations, massacres, and an effort to impose a religious or ethnic homogeneity on an area. And that's something that's really quite foreign to the Middle East. This is, this is a new modern phenomenon. This isn't, uh, you know, the violence that we see there today isn't the continuation of some medieval barbarity. 
This is something new, and it's something which is very close to the experience that what we usually call the West, Europe, went through over the last few centuries. And it's interesting, too, to look at it in the context of, of the rest of the world and nationalism and this notion of people wanting to congregate with people much like themselves and to create these states that really have religious and ethnic identity as well, when in fact that region of the world was much more pluralistic during the period that you write about. Exactly, exactly. This, as I was saying, this, this, this realignment is really, uh, is really a novelty. That region, and you know, this is one of the reasons why I'm so attracted to it as a scholar, it's had a built-in diversity which has endured you know, quite productively for 1,500 years. And that's not necessarily because people regarded diversity as, as a value, as something to be pursued, as something to be cherished. I mean, people are always finding reasons to, to, to hate each other and kill each other and disadvantage each other. And ethnic and religious difference is a really easy way to draw those lines. But because of the way that the economy and the society of this region developed, in which you had a multiplicity of different groups, none of which was powerful enough to wipe out all of the others, and all of which kind of needed each other because they performed different functions in the larger society and economy of the region. So this is why you have groups like the Alawites, who are currently sort of in charge of, of, of Syria, or the Druze, who even though you know, virtually everyone considers them to be heretical, have managed to survive for a thousand years, survive and thrive. So it's curious because there's, it's a region in which the rhetoric runs very high, but compromise has been absolutely necessary on a practical level. And part of it historically, as you tell so many of these stories in Infidel Kings and Unholy Warriors, that, that so much of the compromise and so much of the quote-unquote progress came about because of individuals that were able to rise above or to become powerful leaders in some way. And that's an element that is in some ways different than what we're seeing play out today. I think so. I think so. And this goes back to that model of, of interdependence. That I, was, that I was alluding to, when, when no group is powerful enough to dominate on its own, or when the group which is in political control, again, like the, like the Alawites in Syria uh, presently, is itself a minority, the most effective way to rule is by empowering other groups in a sort of strategy in which you empower minority groups in order to dilute the power of the largest group and in order to be able to play them off against each other. It's kind of, it's kind of a balancing act. This is what holds it together. It's sort of like the tensions within a structure that keep a structure standing. This is what has held up the Middle East in terms of ethno-religious communities, I think, since, uh, since the arrival of Islam. But there's another thing we have to remember, that ethnic identity 
and religious identity are only two facets of the way we think about ourselves. People in the Middle Ages were no less complicated than people today. And we think of ourselves in many different ways simultaneously. And some of those ways, if we were to line them all up, might even appear contradictory. But the fact is, as human beings, particularly when we live in diverse, complex societies, we have to move in different circles simultaneously. And depending on which circles we're moving in and what our specific agendas are, we privilege or activate certain aspects of our identity over others. So, for example, today we're looking at the United States, which is fairly highly polarized politically between, say, Democrats and Republicans. And in many ways, you, you might say, you know, to sort of exaggerate, well, Democrats and Republicans, you know, they really can't stand each other. But that doesn't mean that every time a Democrat and a Republican interacts with one another, they're thinking of themselves on those terms. Or they can't engage in all sorts of partnerships or exchanges in which the Democrat-Republican divide is simply not a factor. So it's not put on the table. And this is what kind of happens in the Middle Ages, and I think you see it in my book. This is how someone like uh, Samuel Haneged, the Jewish wazir of Muslim Granada, can at the same time be the greatest rabbi of 12th century Spain, and at the same time can be a general and a tax collector in a Muslim administration, and at the same time can be writing homoerotic poetry, People have so many built-in contradictions that when we look at the past, we shouldn't expect people to be any less three-dimensional and any less full of apparent contradictions than they are today. Given that, given that there are clear analogies within our own experience, within the European experience, within a broader historical framework, why is it then so hard for us to come to grips with and appropriately respond to current events in the Middle East? Well, I think that part of the reason is we feel so deeply involved. And so it's a question of being able to maintain perspective. It's a question of distance. You know, it's for us who are historians, it's very easy for us to to sort of speak, you know, dryly and detachedly about the violence of the past. But the, the violence of the past was really horrific as well, and it's, it, it's quite different when it's happening around you. And when, it's, when you feel that you could or should be doing something about it. And also, we have all sorts of interests, geopolitical interests, cultural interests, both in the region and in general. And these color our perspective. They skew our perspective. So that it's, it's very difficult to detach ourselves and think, I mean, can you imagine something like ISIS? I mean, this, you know, horrible, horrible, terrible violence, genocide, cultural destruction. It's quite a, a profound step to say, oh, well, wait a minute. This is just normal nation-state building. That's really hard to do when you're faced with it in your own time. And even so, 
that's quite a distinct question from the question of, well, what shall we do about it? When we look historically about what was done about it in the region in the past, what do we learn? What do we take away from that experience? Well, I think that in the past what we find, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not sure how much in this case the lessons of the past are applicable to, to the present because the world has changed in so many ways, uh, in many ways, Political dynamics, human dynamics are the same, but the globe has changed. This is a more integrated world. It's a more technologically advanced world. Before, essentially, again, going back to this diverse, complex economy of the region with these interdependent groups, it was really impossible for any group to succeed as as a ruling power if they took the approach of essentially wiping out their enemies. Now, I'll give you an example. If we look at the, at the Crusades, which is a, uh, a European intervention in the region which people often look back to when they're discussing contemporary politics, what happened during the Crusades? We had a bunch of Christians come down to the Middle East with the idea, well, they had lots of ideas, and it's hard to figure out exactly, you know, what they were thinking, and many of them were thinking different things, but generally speaking, there was an idea that they were going to capture Jerusalem, that they were going to reestablish Christian rule there, and that they were going to clean Jerusalem, cleanse Jerusalem, and the Holy Land of non-Christians, and that, of course, meant in Jerusalem itself, uh, effectively massacring the Muslim inhabitants. They would have massacred the Jewish inhabitants too, but the Jewish inhabitants managed to, most of them managed to ransom themselves. So we have this kind of extreme case of what is apparently an ideological conflict, no holds barred, uh, an attempt to, to radically transform geopolitically, culturally, ethically, religiously the region. Maybe something like what ISIS is doing now. But what happened? The Crusaders, because they also have to w- live in the world of real politique, they also have to survive as rulers, and they have to survive economically. Even before they reached Jerusalem, they were already making deals and treaties with the Muslim powers of the region. And the Kingdom of Jerusalem only survived about 80 or 87 years or so, But the reason it survived, and many people don't realize that, is largely, if not almost exclusively, because it had a long-lasting series of bilateral bilateral treaties with Muslim Damascus. So there's the rhetoric of transforming the world around you, and then there's the reality of rule. And very quickly, the reality of rule starts to dictate what you can actually do. And traditionally in the Middle East, these groups that have come in, religiously or ethnically driven groups who have come in and attempted to transform the region, have not been able to because they've ended up being absorbed by it. There's also this disconnect, and in many ways it plays out the opposite of the way it plays out in the West. 
between what people say privately and what people say publicly. And it's interesting to see how that's played out in the region and how it impacts much of what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, you know, as a historian, you've when you analyze not only what people say but what people do, you always have to think about the audience they're performing for. So even at the height of the Crusades, going back to the last example, even at the height of the Crusades, the, the, the rhetoric was tuned up all the way. But what Christian rulers and noblemen were doing on the ground was totally at odds with that rhetoric. When we look at it through this lens, do we understand the events of today in a clearer way? Can you make that leap? I think that if we're talking specifically about what's going on in that part of the world today, I think what we're seeing is something new. I think we're seeing the, the move towards some sort of European-style nationalism, mm -hmm. which is completely foreign to the region, or almost foreign. An example of, 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 of this, I think, if you look at after the First World War, the Ottoman Empire collapses, and this is the you know the the beginnings of the the Sykes-Picot Treaty and the the division, this artificial division of the Middle East. Well, not all of the Ottoman lands were divided by the Sykes-Picot Treaty. A couple, a few nation states emerged out of it, escaped, as it were, colonial interference. For example, Greece and Turkey. And if we look at what happened in Greece and Turkey, they went through that process then, back in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. There were massive dislocations, relocations, perhaps genocides. There was an effort to transform what had been exceedingly diverse territories into ethnically, religiously, and nationally, if not racially, homogenous countries. And they achieved that at a very bloody, violent cost. And I think what we're seeing now is the continuation of that process. Now that the artificial states that were imposed by the colonial powers are collapsing, it's giving way to an organic process, which is terribly violent and terribly destructive. But I'm not sure what we can do about it. Brian Katlos, his book is Infidel Kings and Unholy Warriors, Faith, Power, and Violence in the Age of Crusade and Jihad. Brian, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.